to the Particular Baptist Podcast, podcast hosted on the Society for Reform Podcasters, found at reformpodcast.com. Uh, we encourage we just uh, were hosted there recently. I would encourage you to check it out. Reformpodcast.com, there's other good uh, reformed podcasts that you can find there, uh, including us, uh, reformpodcast.com. And today we have a special guest with us, Dr. Richard Barcellus, who's joining us uh, again. From, uh, all the way from California. Last episode, we had some technical issues, so we're doing a re-recording. Um, but Dr. Barcellus, thanks for joining us again today. We appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thank you. Sure. So today we'll be discussing uh, his new book, Trinity and Creation, a Scriptural and Confessional Account, um, as well as uh, some of his work with other particular Baptist writings. So uh, we'll start with the book, Pastor Barcellus. Um, so what is what was your I guess, for lack of a better term, inspiration behind the book, and I think the doctrine of the Trinity and creation go hand in hand. Good question. Um, I can categorically deny that the Holy Spirit was the effective power of inspiration behind my book. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> uh, 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 I was tasked with covering Chapter Four of the Confession uh, at. Um, the Southern California Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference for for the 2017 um, conference. I think I was given the job, the task about 2014 or 15, because we try to help the, the main speakers. Um, we tr- try to appoint them to their task two or three or four, sometimes five years in advance. Mm. So they have plenty of time to study because we don't got, want guys winging it. So right. And if they do, we'll know they're winging it and they're in big trouble. <laughs> so, you know, you know, Jim Renahan is there, mm-hmm. Dr. Renahan, and other uh, peers and mentors. So I didn't want to mess up. So I, I dove in, started studying the issue. And as I did, I became uh, further aware of something I already knew, that the creator-creature distinction is absolutely essential to to get first, to understand, so that we interpret uh, God and creatures properly when we come to particular texts. So as I was developing, I had four lectures. As I was developing these lectures, I realized I had way too much material for a conference. So I reduced it. And then at some point after the conference, because I got some positive uh, exp- um, uh, appreciation for the lectures, uh, I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to beef this up um, and pursue publication. So what I do then is I, I, I beef it up and I, I send it out to editorial readers. Um, I have some editorial readers that aren't afraid to put red ink on my documents. And boy, that do they do it sometimes. <laughs> and then it comes back and I either agree or, or disagree with them. And I clean it up and send it out to uh, potential ador- endorsers. In my experience, when you get certain people to endorse it, it's most likely worth uh, publishing because I don't want to publish something that just I think ought to be published. Mm, yeah, good point. Yeah. So um, the reason um, I think that the doctrine of the Trinity and creation go hand in hand uh, is because God, the Trinity, is the creator. And, you know, you have to know something about the Trinity and the nature of God before you can really uh, understand the creature and the nature of the na- and the nature of creatures. So 
that's why the subtitle of the book is is uh, important. Uh, it, it seeks to account for Trinity and creation, both scripturally and confessionally. Trinity and creation, a scriptural and confessional account. So I'm trying to account for how both the doctrine of the Trinity, the classic uh, historical orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, and the doctrine of creation can be accounted for and both the Bible and the conf- and our confession does that. Yeah, it, it's interesting that um, I think that the doctrine of creation is not something we would normally think about in relation to the Trinity. Um, we tend to think about the Trinity by itself and not God himself as in relation to his creation. Um, and there's so much to be unpacked there. When I was, um, you know, I recently taught on the, the doctrine of creation church. Um, in chapter four of the of the confession, I was amazed how much stuff there was written on it. Yes, um, right. Yeah, and how important it is. Yeah, and just read, you know, four one of our confession assumes so much. Mm. So you know, because you taught it recently, you can't just dive in and say nothing about, uh, you know, the fact that God is identified in this chapter as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, the divine agent is uh, the three persons. And so you have to know something about Trinitarian theology before you can properly account for Trinitarian creation. So it's just a, it's amazing. To That's me. why it's hard to teach the confession, um, you know, pulling out chapters of the confession. You have to teach it systematically because they, the chapters complement one another. They're tied together. Yeah, my friend and mentor and peer dr james renhan teaches students to to interpret to read and or interpret the confession sideways mm. uh, you know you're at four one but four one is setting up a lot of other things that are said and uh, uh, affirmed and, and assumed sometimes in later parts but four one also assumes chapter one chapter two chapter three and chapter three mm. So, yeah, it is a it is a it is a whole fabric, a system of doctrine contained therein. Diving into uh, a little bit into the book on uh, page 30, you discuss the concept that creation is simply God creating anything that is not himself. And then you you go on to highlight that um, uh, later in the chapter. Why do you think this distinction is important to bring out? Yeah, the distinction is God and not God. God and everything other than God. So if God is, and he is the only um, existent thing that just is, then creatures must come to be. So there is that creator-creature distinction uh, right there. And I think it's first revealed to us in Scripture in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created not God, the heavens and the earth. So given this vital distinction, in order to account properly for both God and creatures, we have to know something of the nature of divine being and the nature of creaturely being, um, such as divine being is, creaturely being becomes, brought into existence it's upheld in its existence and it's changed 
in its existence by the unchanged changer, that is God. Or we could put it this way, if the creator is immutable, infinite, pure act, impassable, and eternal, which according to the confession and good Christian theology he is, then creation does not change God, nor does God change God in order to create. So if, 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 if that, that's a theological given, and I think it should be, it provides then a hermeneutical grid through which we must interpret scripture. For example, when scripture predicates wings or a finger to God, which it does, by the way, hide me under your wings um, and, and the divine finger of, of Psalm, uh, whatever Psalm that is. Uh, how do we understand these things? Divine wings, divine fingers. You know, if God has uh, literally really existing wings and a finger, then he has these eternally and immutably be, because that's what he is. But but most most aren't going to say that, uh, that, you know, that God has really existing space extending wings and a finger for eternity. Um, so the creator creature distinction keeps us then from interpreting these kinds of uh, these kinds of predications, uh, these kinds of affirmations in Scripture, it keeps us from interpreting anthropomorphic texts, figures of speech, literally and as if they were really existent, you know, divine wings and fing and a finger. God is invisible. You know, the Bible's very clear. God doesn't become invisible that's just what he is there are no divine features which extend into space wings and a finger so divine wings and fingers must be interpreted uh, metaphorically um, they must indicate something though it has to be you know when the scripture says hide me under your wings it's saying something and it means something I think it probably means something like this. Wings signify divine protection and God's finger signifies his power in execution. Um, for instance, the writing of the Decalogue on the stone tablets was by the finger of God. That, that, that's a figure of speech for his power in execution uh, caused this effect. But there wasn't a, a divine uh, space extending uh, limited uh, finite finger that etched things on the stone tablet so that's just a couple examples of why I think this uh, creator creature distinction is vital to have we get it from the Bible but then we take it back to the Bible to help us interpret the Bible as I think the Bible ought to be and it seems like uh, that when people do take passages like that more literally than they should. They're missing the point. They're reading too much into the text um, instead of actually reading the meaning of the text, which is like with the wings, protection, finger, power, is more rather than um, than assuming these features about God. Yeah, well, that's a good point. And they're and they're also doing this. They're not reading the text in its context mm. because the context of every text is all texts. Mm. Yep, that's a right? good point. Yeah, and so uh, you know that's the whole, you know, one of the major Protestant hermeneutical principles was the analogy 
of faith, the entirety of the Christian faith as embodied in the, in the Christian scriptures is to be a grid through which we interpret difficult mm. texts. We, we go to what's clear. You know, God is invisible. That's, that's pretty clear. I do not, God does not change. That's pretty clear. So yeah, they, uh, people that do this, you know, they usually don't do it on the obvious ones like fingers and wings, right? It's usually done with um, passion, repentance. Uh, yeah, when those kind of things are anthropopathisms, when those things are predicated of God, there's something in us, I think, especially in our modern era, we want God to be, you know, more like yeah. us. And so uh, I think there's a tendency to, to not apply the same rules they apply for wings and fingers to repentance in God, grief in God. Some would even say wrath mm -hmm. in God. Wrath for some, the older writers, is not an eternal perfection of, of God. It is a temporal uh, effect or, or temporal revelation of his justice or righteousness. Mm -hmm. But that's a, that's a debate we're not going to get into. Next question. <laughs> well, that uh, actually segues perfectly into the, the next question. Um, on page 41, you discuss the notion of creation not changing who God is. Uh, why is it so important that we remember this when we're thinking about the creation account? Yeah, not only does creation not change who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it does not change what God is, eternal, infinite, mm. pure act, impassable, all those things. So if, let's just put it this way, if God changes by virtue of creation, we have to ask the question then, who is the change agent of God's changing by virtue of creation? So we can drill a little farther and say, well, did God change God? Mm. That's one option. God changed. If God changes via creation, then God changed God. Or we could ask the question, do creatures change God? If God changes for, in virtue of creation, do creatures change God? Now, I don't, I don't think most, excuse me, Christians, I know at least, want to say either of those things. God changed God or creatures changed God. But some say that God's transcendence of creatures requires some bridging of some sort of gap. You know, God is other than creatures, wholly other, which he is. Um, and therefore, he can't be near. He can't be transcendent unless somehow this gap between creatures and God is overcome. And we're not talking about the incarnation, okay? So that's for the purpose of redemption. That's a different category. We're just talking about the triune God as he is transcendent of all creation in his glorious and eternal bliss. Does creation require then something more of God than just calling things into existence in order for God to be present to his creatures. But I, I would say it's something like this. Uh, once creatures appear, they're ever in God's presence. Mm -hmm. Though God still transcends the creaturely realm, God's not one of the creatures that uh, comes into being and that is in his presence. Uh, God's not time bound. God's not space bound. God's not bound in any sense. He is of a different order from creatures. And we have to keep that order uh, 
divine order, creaturely order, firmly in place, or else we're gonna we're gonna mess up. If you get God wrong, you're gonna get all things in relation to God at some point wrong as well. Yeah, and that's it. and I think that segues into the next question regarding uh, John Freeman. K. Scott Oliphant, um, you do critique their proposals in the book. Um, so why do you think these two men took the approach they did in addressing um, God in relation to his creation? I think it might go back to what you're talking about, um, the transcendence and imminence. Yeah, 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 good question. And you're right. You know, I, I tried to uh, critique ideas, not individuals, proposals, not persons. You know, I wasn't trying to throw darts at John Frame's character mm-hmm. or um, anything like that, or 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 K. Scott Oliphant's. I was just dealing with what yeah. they wrote. You know, their ideas. So I, I think they were attempting to account from for some for some admittedly difficult issues in theology: divine transcendence, divine eminence. God is wholly other than His creation. God is a, His God's creation is in God's immediate mysterious presence i think that that, that's what they're trying to do Um, but i don't agree with the way they did it i don't think it works with their own confession of faith and i don't think it exemplifies the long history of the orthodox christian doctrine of god for example john frame says my approach to these issues recognizes two modes of existence in god and before that, he said the difference between God's atemporal and historical existences begins not with the creation of man, but with creation itself. So God has these two modes of existence. One is atemporal and one is historical. And at least part of this, these two existences starts with creation itself i don't find that cogent god um, caused a historical existence of god to come into existence um, a temporal existence you know atemporal and historical we could say atemporal and and temporal atemporal we could say eternal and historical we could say time bound it just doesn't i don't think it works i'm not the only one who doesn't think it works um dr oliphant posited god uh, at least he used to taking on covenantal properties in order to create and relate to creatures i'll quote him he says uh in a book that's now out of print and i, I i'm glad it's uh, out of print he says that god freely determined to take on now watch the terms he uses attributes characteristics and properties that he did not have and would not have without creation so it's a free determination of god these are decreed covenantal properties is what he ends up calling them things that god would take to himself now both men see some sort of gap which they think needs to be bridged if god is going to be imminent to his creatures Now, I think a fundamental problem with both of the proposals involves the very thing we've been talking about, the creator-creature distinction. So in an effort to account for divine eminence, Oliphant's proposal entails that God, revealing himself to creatures, 
cannot be both transcendent and immanent, this uh, God in himself. So he must become something uh, he was not, something he decreed that he would become, but something that he was not eternally. Uh, So God acts in this new manner of existence in order to reveal himself to and interact with us, um, Dr. Oliphant says, for eternity. Now, this assumes a problem with divine transcendence if God is going to reveal himself to mm. creatures. It, it assumes uh, an ontological problem that must be overcome if man is to know God. Oliphant says, and I'll quote him, this is, quote, a ba- there is, quote, a boundary between the being of God and the being of creation. Now, part that's that's true. Okay, I get it. But he reads, he takes that uh, in a direction I don't think is okay. Namely, that therefore, or in order for God to create and relate, he has to assume these covenantal properties. Now, I, I think there is an ontological gap, right. obviously. But does but but does the ontological gap? necessarily entail a relational boundary and my answer to that is well no Um, matter of fact in a very very helpful it's a very technical book but a very helpful book by Stephen Doobie a recent book he says God God has no gap to bridge in order to draw near to us and in fact we can only exist where he is and then he quotes Acts 17 28 in him we live and move and have our mm. being. Or there's, uh, I have other quotes, but here's, here's another one. Bob Inc. Implied in creation is both God's transcendence and God's eminence. That says it in a very good manner. Uh, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the first creative act or effect of God is not covenantal properties. It's not God. It's heavens and earth. Psalm 75, 1. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks to you for your wondrous works. Declare that your name is near. Your name is Old Testament way for saying you. Your, your works declare what? Your, you, your refers to God who is transcendent of creatures, but his works declare that the transcendent one is near. So the works of God are revelatory of the fact that he is near. So God doesn't have to overcome God in himself uh, to become God with us. Now, now I, I think that both Frame and Oliphant assumed a working tenet of, of uh, aspects assume the truthfulness of a working aspect uh, aspect of what some people call theistic personalism or theistic mutualism. And that would be this. Given classical Christian theism, there are ontological features in the eternal God which must be overcome if divine eminence is to be. Now, I think they assumed that. And I don't think that's really a problem. I think it's a phantom problem. So that would be my response to, to why I uh, critique those men's views. Now with uh, John Frame, he's Presbyterian, correct? 
Yes, but John Frame is uh, in the PCA and Scott Oliver okay. is OPC. Okay. So yeah, that would make them inconsistent with their confession, because um, even the Westminster would confess that God is without parts; He is perfect. Um, he just is that, and they're just identifying with Nicaea at that point. Um, so yeah, if God is having to take on new properties, uh, divine simplicity is compromised um, right then and there. Yeah, yeah, and that's why. I, I tried to, in the book, I tried to push early on in the book, the fact that chapter four mm-hmm. assumes chapter two of God and of the Holy Trinity. You can't tinker with chapter two once it's laid down. That's it. Yep. You know, that's what they confess. So whatever, whatever creation ex nihilo means, we already know it can't mean change in God. Mm. Before chapter right, four right. is written. All right. So in chapter six, um, you move on. You you laid out that uh, you lay out these uh, these arguments from Frame and the Oliphant. Um, but talk about chapter six, the doctrine of appropriations, um, and this is that God, the I guess the act of God in, cre- in creating the world must be attributed to the entire being of God or all three persons of the Trinity, um, and that we should not attribute different acts to only certain members of the Trinity. Um, for the ad extra or the external works of God, they're undivided. Um, so how do we reconcile this doctrine with uh, passages like Colossians 1.16 or John 3 um, or Genesis 1.2, the spirit is said to be hovering over the waters or that the world was created through Christ um, that appear to be distinct acts as opposed to the other persons of the Trinity. And I admit that I um, you know, I, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around this doctrine. It was, it's not an easy one to grasp. No, no, but it is a, it's, it's a, it's a good question. It's a, it's a profound question. The answer is, uh, you know, of course it's God, right. so it's mysterious to us, but he has revealed things. Uh, let me recommend this to you guys and, and the, to the listeners, uh, the Credo magazine, uh, Matthew Barrett's kind of the senior editor or something of that, but they just came out with, uh, uh, I forgot the title of the most recent one. I've read a couple of the articles came out this morning, I think maybe yesterday. Uh, and it deals with some of these really thorny issues by really competent men who are writing for them. So I, I, I let me recommend that first, but, uh, appropriations, when you say appropriations, you know, if I was preaching, uh, on, Genesis 1, 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, um, the waters of the earth, or however it says there. And I said, this is a distinct act of the Trinity appropriated to a particular person of the Trinity. This is the doctrine of appropriations, brethren. You know, (laughs) I would get weird looks, okay? Uh, But let's start with, what does that word mean? Uh, Technical words, uh, by the way, were honed over time uh, on purpose because they encapsulated crucial teachings, usually in the context of dealing with false teachings and, and heresy. So the term itself, appropriation, uh, here's what, here's what the, the, the concept embodied by the term is. It is the attribution uh, of an essential reality of a divine action or of a created effect, uh, an essential reality would be immutability, a divine action, a created effect, a created effect, 
man. Uh, excuse me, a divine action, creation broadly considered. It created effect, a particular instance of that which has been affected, man, we may say. So it is the attribution of an essential reality, an attribute of God, a divine action, or of a created effect common to the three divine persons, yet attributed to one person in a special way. I'll tease that out. If you're very interested, you can read Gilles Emery has a book on the Catholic introduction of the doctrine of the Trinity. It's got a second commandment <laughs> violation on the cover. Sorry. Uh, he's, got, he's got a very good treatment of that. So the doctrine of appropriations claims this, that sometimes the Bible attributes the common external divine work, in our case, of creation to a particular divine person. You mentioned Colossians 1, John 1, and, and uh, uh, Genesis 1, 2. But listen to Job 26, 13. By his spirit, he adorned the heavens. Mm. There's another text. So that means, you mean that the eternal son and the eternal father had nothing to do with the adorning of the heavens? It was a separable act of the Holy Spirit in distinction from the power of the Father and the power of the Son? That, that's what this is getting at. The answer to those questions is no. Uh, so the question then becomes this. How do we account for this in light of the fact that the external works of the Trinity are undivided? If we want to say when God acts, he acts as he is, and he is Trinity. But the Bible attributes distinct works to particular persons. So if the external works of the Trinity are undivided, they're not parceled out. The Father does one-third, the Son does one-third, the Spirit does one-third. If that is the case, that the external works of the Trinity are undivided, how do we account for the... It is a biblical pattern of attributing peculiar divine works to particular divine persons. Scripture sometimes attributes an act of God to a particular divine person. Colossians 1.16, John 1.3 attributes creation to the person of the Son. Now, does that mean that that divine person, that divine person's, excuse me, does that mean that divine persons can do things apart from other divine persons can the father do something the son does not do can the spirit do something that the father and the son have nothing to do with as far as producing the effect uh, or we could ask this question do divine persons act according to who they are or what they are full stop let's just think about that question that's a loaded question do divine persons act according to who they are? Because he's the father, he does certain things. Because he's the son, he does certain things distinct from the father. And because the Holy Spirit's the Holy Spirit, he does certain things because he's the Holy Spirit and, not because, and, and because he's not the son and not the father. Do they act according to their personal identity or do the Trinitarian persons act by the divine nature persons act according to nature is the old maxim 
if that is the case, and there's a singular divine nature or essence, that's, that's what we call divine unity, yet there are three persons, when any one person acts, we have to say, and if they're acting according to divine nature, we have to say somehow, some way, the other persons are acting as well. Let's take for creation, for example. It is an effect of the execution of divine power. Now, if the persons of the Godhead share the same identical one divine nature, which includes divine power, by what power do the persons act? By the one shared divine power that exists. So if the divine nature or substance is one in God, then when divine power is executed, it is executed by God, and God just is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, this is why creation is an effect produced by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, like the confession says. If creation were affected by only one divine person, let's say the Father, this would divide the unity of God. There, there would be divine power executed by the Father apart from the Son and the Holy Spirit, thus compromising divine unity. Uh, we would even run the risk of denying monotheism, I think, and even possibly predicating some form of tritheism or that the Son and Holy Spirit are, you know, God-light or something like that. This has helped me, this right here. Since God is Trinity, he acts as he is. If you get that down, since God is Trinity, he acts as he is. It is the triune God who's acting. When the Bible attributes a distinct Trinitarian act to a particular divine person, it's not negating the act of the other persons. It's highlighting one particular person as a hint, as a glimpse into the mystery that we call the Trinity. Uh, by the way, that Credo magazine uh, recent edition I mentioned has a chapter on inseparable operations by somebody who just had his book published a couple months ago. I read the book. It's outstanding. It's not an easy book to read. Um, and th they'll deal with appropriations in there. And if I haven't thoroughly confused you yet, I can more thoroughly confuse you. If you read my book, chapter six, I, I treat Genesis one, two, and I use John, uh, mm -hmm. John Owen as an example of the, of the older tradition of how they interpreted texts that attributed uh, a Trinitarian work to a particular person. And I found that uh, just reading Owen, I, I must, it, it was a brief section in his work on the Holy Spirit. I just found that so helpful. And I read it several times. It took me, you know, a few months to grapple with it myself in a way that I could articulate it back to others. I believed it. I think I always believed it in one sense, but I didn't know how to tease it out. I didn't know how to present it. So when you read the older guys, they really drill down. And so I'll recommend chapter six. <laughs> off now. now that, um, that doctrine, it brings an implication. I was talking to Sean about this on Sunday. Um, how would the the doctrine of appropriations uh, be played out in the atonement? You know, if the Father is pouring His wrath out on the Son, 
is it just the father acting and pouring his wrath out or is it a trinitarian act that's being uh, done in the atonement okay it's a trinitarian act and we, and we need to do partitive exegesis mm. with our christology there you know what that is watch you know what it is even though maybe you never heard, I it, heard, it, heard it that, heard that way now. before partitive okay you remember uh, Augustine, he has these famous maxims. We have to view the sun according to the form of God and mm. according to the form of man. And we must make careful distinctions. You know, our confession in chapter 8, paragraph 6, the mediator acts according to both natures, each nature doing mm. what is proper to itself. Okay? So... So when we go to the cross, which is the, you know, that's the classic example of, of a difficult theological issue. Um, whatever we say about it, we need to bring these categories to bear according to the form of God, according to the form of man. Does God mm. suffer? Can God be the patient of an agent's action and be altered or changed in light of the agent's action. Is God a patient? Is divinity a patient? Mm. The answer is no. So God can't suffer. Uh, the Father can't suffer, and he doesn't. The Spirit can't suffer, and he doesn't. And the person of the Son, according to his divine nature, can't suffer. But the person of the Son, according to his human nature, can and did suffer. So then your question is, well, is this is this like the song says, you know, the father pours his wrath out. Now, if they meant by that a, an appropriation of a divine act to a particular person, namely the father, it's fine. If they divided the Trinity up. And I don't know, I don't even know who wrote the song. Our church doesn't sing. If your church sings it, now you can tell your pastor, <laughs> hey, pastor, I don't know if we should sing that song. Uh you know, it depends on it depends on what they meant. I doubt they would say, "Oh, we 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 were doing appropriations here. We realized that that all external works of the Trinity are undivided works, and we had partitive exegesis in our Christology as we we're mm -hmm. thinking through this." They're not going to say that, okay? But you know, here's a weird one: Did the Son, according to His divine nature, send the Son according to His human nature? Um. I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah. So it's a tough question. Huh? The the first time I read like Augustine and Aquinas and John Gill uh, who are my favorite commentator commentators on the Gospel of John and preaching through John, they're my favorite not because they always um have the best things or the most helpful things to say on everything, but if you have a tough trinitarian uh, incarnational uh text where the son is saying weird things mm. those are the my go-to guys oh and cyril of alexandria and i don't know which one of it one of said he started launching off on this how, how the son was sent by the triune god the son according to his human nature and that's think of oh, the sending. Just, and that's really where no, i think the linchpin is 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 understanding properly that distinction between the natures it, and having that right first. 
Well, yeah, see, there you go. You brought up a particular text in Matthew 26, and now you're going, hold on, we better have a theological construction in place, a Christological one, if we're mm. going to interpret this thing right. right. That's what you just did. So you, you just said, I better know the creator before I try mm, to yeah. interpret this creature, this text. By the way, the, the scriptural text is creature, you know. Right. There was a time when the Bible didn't exist in the form that it exists. Yeah. So so you were just doing the creator creature distinction and now but you applied it more to Christology, but still it's still there. You mm. know, that's so and we important. tend to forget it because we want God to be like us. We want to understand him so it's easier to bring him down to our level than try to work the other way. Work up. But and I think we live in a theological culture that's made it uh made it easier as well it's it's and it's not like there's this dastardly you know group of people <laughs> with horns and a tail and a cape that that are trying to mess us up uh although you know I know that I believe in real demons and all that stuff but it's just the theological culture that most of the, our pastors were trained in and their mentors this has been going on for quite some time and now it's being challenged. Uh, and I think it's good that it's being challenged. And I think that, um, you know, studying chapter four, one was a big leap for me in terms of seeing the importance of theology proper in place before, or as a, 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 a theological and hermeneutical grid through which I interpret mm. texts or else I'm going to get in big Amen. trouble. All right. Um, shifting topics uh, just a little bit. What led you to uh, begin to uh, publish a uh, particular Baptist literature? Uh, that's a good, good, uh, good shift there. Well, I, I don't remember the exact year. I think it was sometime around 2002 or so. Um, my dear friend, Pastor uh, Francisco Orozco, from uh, Cuauhtémoc, Chihuahua, Mexico. Uh, we had become friends over the internet, and then uh, we talked on the phone several times. Our church actually brought him and his wife up, uh, and he preached for us, and we got to know him even more. At some point, about around 2002, he says, uh, you need to start a theological journal. And I said, you need to start a theological journal? He said, no, you do. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, because nobody knows who I am and you're better, better known. You have a lot of friends and we need a journal. So we started the Reformed Baptist Theological Review uh, in 2004. But it took us a while, you know, to generate the idea and get, get it all fleshed out. But around the same time, I had, uh, I had listened to some sermons by Sam Waldron in the early 1990s the New Covenant Constitution of the Church at, or Reformed Baptist Manifesto. I forgot the name of it. And I contacted him. I said, I'd like to turn that into a book. And around the same time, 2000, 2002, I can't remember, Dr. Jim Renahan sent me what mm -hmm. ended up being the Cox Owen volume uh, in a very different form. And, you know, I was blown away by, the, by, the, by both of them, uh, by reading the Cox thing and the Owen thing. And it really really helped me um, 
because I had some outstanding questions that nobody could really answer or give answers that I thought were sufficient uh, for my own brain. And then that would comport mm. with what I said I confessed, you know, the second one in chapter seven. So all those, those three projects, the first review, uh, first journal review and the, the, the Reformed Baptist Manifesto and the Cox Owen books, we worked on those all at the same time. It took us a while, um, but we got it all done. And that, that's, uh, I guess the rest is history. Uh, by the way, let me say this, that RBTR, uh, that journal, we did 11 issues and I stopped doing it because um, Francisco had to bail out. Uh, it was just too busy. And I totally understood uh, five or six years in. And then I got um, uh, somebody else, Robert Martin, I think, helped me. Dr. Robert Martin helped me for a while. And then Gary Crampton helped me for a while. And then uh, at one point, I just said, you know, getting guys to write, most of the guys were pastors. Mm -hmm. It's just not fair for them. It's too much work. I got these deadlines. Uh, and, you know, when a pastor sends you a, <laughs> Dear Rich letter, I can't meet the deadline. What am I going to say? What am I going to say, you wicked, evil, you know? I'm going to say, I understand. I'm a pastor, too. And so I just, I thought, you know what? It's too hard. We're going to stop. So we did. And then uh, a few years later, I was asked to serve on the board of, I cleaned my, my own slate at the time. I, I stopped serving on a board I was on. Uh, and I stopped doing the journal. And I think I stopped a couple other things. And so about four years, I was, man, I had some liberty, you know. I think I wrote a couple books during that time. And then I, 2014, uh, well, 2013, I, I ran an idea by Dr. Renahan, uh, and he actually had the same idea. He could have ran it by me first, and I had the same idea. I don't remember who communicated with who first, but it was, mm, it was yep. to do a journal for the IRBS, Theological Seminary. So we've been trying to do trying to do one of those one of those a year, not two, because we did two a year for the RBTR and it was too much. So we've been trying to do that, stay up with, you know, sub hopefully substantial and helpful art articles, primarily for pastors and seminary like students, and then book reviews. So we we keep that going, and we have another series going that I like. It's called. It wasn't my idea. It was Dr. Renahan's idea. Mm -hmm. It's called Recovering Our Confessional Heritage. And we have three books currently in print in that series. Um, Dr. Renahan's Associational Church Churchmanship. Um, I wrote one called The Covenant of Works. It's confessional and scriptural basis. Dr. Renahan's A Toolkit for Confessions. Very excellent and helpful book. And then, and then I have in my hand our newest one in that series, is called Milk for Little Ones, an Introduction Ooh. to the Baptist Catechism. Hmm. It's, a, it's a children's catechism by one of Dr. Renahan's students. And I think it's going to be very helpful. He borrowed as much as he could from others. And then he, um, you know, slightly altered some of the questions and answers. And he might have, uh, you know, inserted his own because he, he wanted it to reflect in children's language uh, his own conviction of what he, what, you know, what men call 1689 federalism. Um, so I, I think that'll be a very helpful tool. I have the proof copy in my hand. I'm going to send it 
to Ryan, the author, once he okays it. Oh, wow. I look forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think the, the other children's catechism that's out is the one printed from uh, Emmanuel Reformed Baptist Church in Grand Rapids. Yeah. Yeah, they have one, right. This one's very clear on the... Ryan's is very clear on the covenant of works and then the um, mm. new covenant, mm. covenant of grace promise. Well, I very much look forward to that. All that stuff. Yeah, uh, we have a men's theological read at our church and... I know we've gone through one, I think it was the first one of the uh, Recovering Our Confessional Heritage. Is, um, Dan, did we actually do, I think we might have done like the second or third also, did we? I think we might have done two of them, two, in the, two of yeah. them from the series. Yeah, Yeah. so they, they are very beneficial and very helpful. Uh, what uh, in general has the response been in the Reformed Baptist community uh, to the uh, the literature that um, you guys have been published, have you uh, gotten the sense that this is this is greatly benefiting the church? Or... Uh, yeah, I'd say the response has been, uh, I would say, overwhelmingly positive, hmm. though I wish, you know, we sold more books, not because I'm going to retire <laughs> or anything if we sell more books, but because I want to help churches. And I, I think we have a good product. We have a good system where we rarely have typos which that used to just frustrate me so much to see baptist publishing stuff in small publishing companies and and you know 10, 25 one time i counted in a 200 oh, something wow. page book over 100 typos i actually i actually contacted the author but i i just uh, i think we have a good product uh, not just that there's hardly ever typos uh, it's not that there's not typos. There are typos. I get it, but hardly ever. Uh, but I think the, the 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 content is very good. Some of the books, like Sam Ranahan's book on impassibility, it's mm. that thing's outstanding, and it has it has the badge of being the first RBAT book with uh, <laughs> with study questions. So wow. But I for a churchman that that thing's great. I read it with a group of people from our church and. You know, I was able to stop and explain things, uh, tease things out for him. That was so helpful. And I think Brian, Ryan uh, mm-hmm. Davidson's book, uh, Green Pastors on the Church's Means of Grace, that's, an, that's a fabulous book. Uh, and I, I hope that in the years to come, those two books especially would be extremely helpful uh, for the churches. Now, in the question you sent me, it says, especially given there are those in the RB community who do not hold the <laughs> 1689 federalism. So, so yeah, that that terrible term there. Uh, you know, the book Recovering a Covenantal Heritage is not an apologetic for 1689 federalism. And I didn't I never intended it to be that. Um it has, as far as I know, at least two authors in it that would not identify themselves as 1689 federalism. My, my desire in that book was to get material out, some of which had already been written and was contained in the old journals, to just let the Christian public know, hey, we're, we got this thing called covenant theology as well. It's got our own you know, unique twists and all that. Um, but the label 1689, you know... It, uh, my publishing company it doesn't say mm-hmm. RBAP, a federal a 1689 <laughs> federalist publisher. Okay. 
it's it's not it's not even a badge uh, i didn't make it up it's not a term or phrase jim renahan sam renahan we didn't make it up if you want to blame somebody yeah. i guess we have to blame Brad, brandon adams but i don't blame him like this is a bad thing brandon is the guy that put together the videos oh yes that was that was very helpful early on videos. yeah yeah well when those things came out i don't even remember the years five years ago or more i would go places uh, even in even in south america and men would come up to me because they have a uh 1689 federalism translated into Spanish website someplace. And they're starting to publish our books as well in Spanish. But I would go places in the States and in uh, Central and South America. And guys would tell me how helpful those were. And then they'd say, but you need to do two other series of videos. One Mm. should be for the layman. Bring what you guys said in the first series of videos. Bring it down to the layman. The others, particular doctrinal issues, you know, the covenant of works, the function of the Mosaic covenant in the covenant, the function of the Mosaic covenant in the history of redemption, the newness of the new covenant or or the Sabbath, you know, things like that. Well, we haven't done those. But going back, Brandon sends us an email. He could have texted me or called me. I don't remember. I know Brandon's a friend of mine at some point. And he says, I have this idea. I want to create a website. And I want to have this newfound uh, particular Baptist covenant theology that you guys have unearthed. I want it to get out there. So I'd like to do videos of you guys. I'll send you the questions. You can work on the answers. I'll come to your place and do the videos. So he went down to Dr. Renahan's study in Escondido. He went to Sam Renahan's church building. And he did my videos in my living room. So then he takes them home and he said, it'll take me a few weeks to clean them up and I'll send you guys a pilot, mm-hmm. you know, a proof thing. And you can look at it, see what you think. And, and I, I already knew it's going to be outstanding because Brandon Adams is a professional at what he does uh, and has worked for many years doing this uh, and made a living of it. So I thought, wow, that's great. This is going to be very helpful. Well, at some point he says, I need to name it something. So here are some options. And one of them was 1689 federalism. And the reasoning behind it uh, was that it it's a distinct name and it reflects the fact that this type of covenant theology was was the was the dominant view, majority view back in the day. And that way we can distinguish it from other things like the minority mm-hmm. view, which he called the 20th century RV, whatever so that's how that's how that phrase came about. And I know for a fact that not everybody enjoyed <laughs> the, the, the phrase 1689 federalism. Some thought, oh, what are you guys? What is this? Are you guys trying to make yourselves out to be elitists or something? I'm going, no, Brandon sent us an email. We said, OK, <laughs> had to call it something. <laughs> it was that simple. But. Yeah, I got to call it something. So I would hope that. Uh, that has not caused anybody to shy away from our books. I, I think that would be sad. Um, our, you know, you can read most of our books and you're not, there's not going to be a, you know, we're not beating the drum or tooting the horn on that issue. Although we obviously believe it. And, you know, Sam Renahan's book is, oh, yes, it uh, is. by founders, <laughs> very 1689 federalism. And, and my, and my 
my garden books the same without even mentioning you know that phrase yeah no yeah i mean the those books are very helpful i I know uh, sam's book i have it on my table in here it's been very helpful um in laying out what that that view of covenant theology is but you're right um it, it is i guess an anachronistic term it's more just to from other views of covenant theology because we're not monolithic uh, as reformed baptists in our covenant theology unfortunately No, they weren't. Well, they weren't in the 17th century either. And we all and we all knew it at the time. I just think I think some people thought we were trying to say this is the exclusive only 1689 mm. confession view that fits the confession. I think it's the best view that fits the statement of the confession, but the statement of the confession it's it's mm. it's pretty uh broad in one sense and i think the reason is is because they knew that there were cox and his editor collins they knew that they wanted to be able to embrace other men who crossed their t's and dotted their eyes a little different on this issue and so they left it that way but still the way it is i'm convinced the best uh, uh form of Baptist covenant theology uh, to explain the confession is what men call the 1689 federalism. But I have dear friends that disagree with me, and I can live with that. That's a good way to live. Yeah, we would definitely agree with you there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, especially on the fact that I'm humble, right? Well, Dr. Barcelos, we really appreciate you joining us today. Um, It's been a very enjoyable discussion, very fruitful, um, and I wish you the best. Um, and everyone listening, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Lord willing, we will be back next week uh, for more. We'll be having another guest on the show. Uh, but until then, have a great week, and God bless. God bless.